welcome to BIM Academy's Digital Climate Podcast with me, Andrew Johnson. I'm the Learn Development Lead for BIM Academy, and I've asked some learning and education experts who I admire greatly to chat with me about how we progress the integration of BIM and digital construction processes into schools and higher and further education curriculum. For some time, within the construction industry, we have discussed skills gaps. There is a clear lack of skill in the application of digital construction methodologies among young people at the start of their careers. That is why it is important to educate the benefits of digital working practices and how we apply them to projects from a young age. By introducing digital working methods and practices to our younger generation now, will future-proof construction for the next set of innovators and forward thinkers to create even further progressive technologies and have the ability to apply these tools. Businesses are in desperate need of workers skilled in this area and educators need to realise they have the ability to close the skills gap. I'm Andrew Johnson, the Learn Development Lead at BIM Academy and today I'm talking to Dr Jenny Barrett. Senior Lecturer in Leadership and Management at the University of Central Lancashire. As a core team member of the Women in BIM, Jenny is involved in projects that aim to support women in BIM in careers. Welcome, Jenny. Tell us a little bit more about your experience, research, and what issues you've found in regards to education in programmes. Hi, Andrew. Um, yes, I'm a programme director for the master's course in international business and management um, at the University of Central Lancashire. Um, but my work and research really stems from my experience working in construction and um, working in construction for a long time on, with, in, on big and complex projects. I noticed that there were a lack of skills, particularly um, as, we, as the industry was digitalizing on how we collaborate the human aspects of and the psychological aspects of how we interact and how we need to kind of understand that to be able to um, effectively implement our digital strategies. No, fantastic. So over the past decade, the construction industry's undergone a revolution in digital construction with, for example, the introduction of BIM in the whole life cycle of the design and build process. This is a significant level of change of work and methods. Do you believe the level of change to bring new skills to the industry? Have they kept up at the same pace? Are there enough skilled workers in industry to be able to deliver these construction methods? I think there's always going to be a lag between the demand for skills from industry and the development of those in an educational setting. Um, but this isn't always the case in other sectors, for example, um, such as health, um, because they've got a very research led uh, culture. Um, you know, the, uh, skills and methodologies are developed in the lab and then implemented in practice. In construction, it's kind of the other way around. Our learning is grounded from what we can see happening in practice and, and, and you know, best practice emerges from reality, essentially. So we need and we don't have that research led culture. So I think there's more that we can do to um, work in partnership, um, academia and industry to develop those methodologies. And I think it. There are really good examples where this has happened in practice, but I don't think there's enough of them. I think we need to strengthen this and really put it at the centre of um, how we're going to drive innovation in our industry um, so that um, the skills and the um, innovations can happen in parallel and um, skills development can keep up with uh, what industry needs. So you mentioned about the construction industry there and about its experience. 
And we're definitely seeing at the moment in schools, higher education and further education that there is a lot of experience, but they're struggling to get good lecturers, good trainers to deliver this training. Have you experienced any of this at all? Yes, absolutely. I think there's, um, as I say, there's a lot of R&D happening in industry, um, but that takes people's time. It's very difficult to then um, find people who are willing to make the move into education um, or have the time um, available to um, come in and teach and, you know, whether it be through guest lectures or, or whatever, which is why I think, you know, this emphasis on partnerships and alliances and developing new kind of um, business models that integrate uh, education are, are going to be critical. No, it's fantastic you mentioned there about like guest lectures and so on. We do this a lot and we get invited at BIM Academy to do a lot with the universities because it just adds a bit of um, flavour, a bit more experience. Um, so, yeah, it really does help. So another quick question. At what stage do you introduce digital skills? Do we upskill industry workers or do we introduce this to course curriculums during education? Firstly, I think both is, is the answer, but it's not easy to do. But I think it's worth thinking that when, when we speak to construction uh, professionals, construction workers, and ask why they got into construction, they'll often tell you that they knew that they were interested in building or design um, at a very early age. You know, I'm sure um, many, many of us, including myself, remember playing with Lego, Meccano, fixing things. And all this is developing not only the motor skills, but also um, the inventiveness. And through decades, each of us, through trial and error and experiment, through play, as well as through education, develop these really good skills that make us the construction professionals we are. Now, when we look at digital skills, we seem to separate that off. We need to capture and embed even in, I'd argue, in early years education, um, those skills for, um, you know, the digital Lego, if you like, for um, that will really embed those skills so that they become um, and part of a person and drive them um, to be the best they can be when they move into that industry, rather than, um, as I often see, um, people doing an architecture degree, an engineering degree, and perhaps then just developing their digital skills at master's level, where they've decided perhaps to take a master's in BIM. Um, and that's kind of too late because there's a lot of cognitive development and understanding that needs to happen in those formative years. So I'd argue, yes, that broadly digital skills at early years and primary education, but really in secondary education, we should be really seeing um, BIM. I mean, I know they kind of use things like SketchUp, but going deeper than that, um, embedding things like BIM and understanding at um, secondary level as part of whether it be uh, design technology or computer science uh, courses. No, I totally agree with that. Um, I came um, mainly to do with age because the technology wasn't there then, especially for the digital skills. But um, yeah, definitely, I would say in the past decade, I've noticed it really come on. And I've noticed it really come on because I've got teenage boys as well. So they were at the Minecraft era, so both of them are. And my eldest sort of moved away from it and still my 16 year old with his groups, they all collaborate and they build these fantastic cities or um, theme parks and so on like that. But it's their imagination, it's their coding skills. So I always remember 
rightfully looking at my son at the age of nine and he was sat there doing coding on Minecraft, touch typing. <laughs> and he had just learned it through these skills that he, and I don't think these skills were generally from school. I think it was more to do with hobbies, um, especially with it being brought up with um, my likes of computers that we've always had and gaming computers, VR, even in the house. But it really has helped them um, develop these skills. And one, they're now just going into um, further education. So I've got one going to university next year and I've got one going into A-levels. And I do really feel like it's these skills that are helping them get in, like you were saying, with imagination. But no, I totally agree with everything you're saying there. And it really does drive this innovation. But you know what I'd add to that, um, Andrew, is I think what because I am also have a teenager um, who's coming through the Minecraft generation. Um, but what I see, which obviously, you know, coming from that social psychology um, perspective, is um, a really important skill, which is adaptability. I see those Minecraft and other um, platforms that they use changing rapidly, developing rapidly as new code is added, et cetera, et cetera. And I see that um, the that generation are more able to um, adapt to new uh, versions and new softwares and new platforms and new ideas. And I think that's something that we really need to nurture because in the future, um, who knows, in 10 years time, who knows how BIM is going to develop. So we need to make sure that the students who are graduating now have that adaptability to um, adapt to that rapidly changing digital environment. It's good you actually mentioned that as well, and even about the, um, what you actually cover there as a senior lecturer in when leadership and management. Do you think using these skills, so even like our teenagers and working with Minecraft and so on, do you think it really does? Because they work in groups. They generally don't work in silos. They've got people all over the world that could be on different servers and so on. Do you think it like brings the leaders in them and actually they help manage what's going on? So similar to like it is in the construction industry. Yes, I think you do, but it does, absolutely. But, um, you know, and I can certainly hear um, my teenager in his bedroom kind of coordinating strategies for doing whatever. But um, I think that is coming at the moment. This is coming from, um, it's happening by happy accident. Um, maybe some kids do that, some, some don't. What we don't have is a kind of coordinated approach to those leadership and team working and communication skills um, that are needed. Um, it's clearly in them, whether it's some of them or all of them. Um, but now we need to teach it as a, a very much significant part of digital literacy. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Um, as you said, most of the time when they're doing Minecraft and playing it in the evenings, probably when they should be doing homework as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is one of these things that could really um, um, be a distraction, as you said, where if it was more structured in education, then they would have really enjoy it. So following on, what can we do to provide qualifications at the higher and further education level that covers the digital knowledge and skills required to the function effectively within industry that is now operating with a digital first perspective? Ultimately, universities are developing courses based on what they think industry needs. And of course, that's an informed think. But ultimately, if industry wants to set up new courses, 
it would be great if industry could help them um, deal with the targets that will eventually lead to the validation of new courses. Things like graduate outcomes, will um, the courses actually lead uh, students to be able to get a job in the industry um, and a highly skilled job at the right level? Those are things that governments are measuring universities on. So we need to be sure before we uh, launch a course that the graduate outcomes are going to be reliable and sustainable. Also, financial, you know, it comes down to financial viability. Is, are the, do the numbers of students stack up? How are students supported um, financially to do those courses, particularly at postgraduate level? Um, so if industry can help and work with us to um, establish that those feeder courses into industry um, and it's a partnership approach, I think it's much more likely that we'll get sustainable and valuable courses that, are, that really deliver those digital skills in the way that industry needs. No, I would totally agree. Um, so talking about, just following on from the qualifications, so we've seen a huge shift in the past years. And I would probably say this year, mostly in the higher education. So we had the introduction of T-levels a couple of years ago, and I know they've just actually changed the learning objectives in T-levels, BTECs, HNCs, HNDs, everything. So all these learning objectives are all up to date. But would you say that the content in most of the higher education um, institutions is up to date as well? That's a really good question. Uh, I think in terms of the digital literacy and the technical skills, um, it's not my specific area, so I wouldn't comment on that. But what I do see, obviously, uh, my area is leadership and management, is those, I don't want to call them soft skills because I think they're actually quite hard, um, but those human skills, I think, are lacking. We are basing a lot, from what I've seen, we're basing a lot of our theory, theoretical frameworks and our teaching on really quite archaic pre-digital models that are no use to us really. Well, they, they kind of set a basis, but actually things like those human skills, like leadership, collaboration, um, they've radically changed as we've digitalized how we interact, how we lead, how we lead a remote distributed team, how we um, collaborate and beyond just sharing information and sharing data is radically different. We need to think about those things that humans do when they interact, when they collaborate. Things like creative thinking, innovation, value sharing, goal setting, role definitions. Those are the kind of implicit things we have in those collaborative conversations. And they're really important for project outcomes. So I think we need a radical updating of the theoretical frameworks for the digital age. Yeah, because as you mentioned there, there's a lot. And I think one of the key ones, and this is, it can be in with personal knowledge management or even just knowledge management in organizations, institutions, and so on, and sharing this information, which at its core, that's what BIM should be about. It's hoping to provide, so we don't actually work in silos. So all stakeholders, everybody in the project can work together. So do you think the introdu introduction, I would say, to knowledge management at a higher level will really help? Um, schools, higher education, and um, further education as well. Yes, absolutely. I think when we're teaching, um, and it's partly because of the assessment process, isn't it, that when we teach, 
we um, assess our students on uh, individual effort, individual merit, and it's the designer as a team of one in those instances. Um, that bears no resemblance in my experience and observation to how it works in practice. Nobody designs a building alone. Um, it's impossible. So do you think industry are very good at knowledge sharing as well, especially when it comes? Because I, on a day-to-day -day basis, people ask what I do and I'm just like, oh, I do BIM. Oh, is that a new thing? I'm like, well, actually, it's been <laughs> for quite a long time now, but it might be new to a lot of people. Um, but also as well, and this was when we wrote the content for BIM Academy, is we've introduced a lot of case studies. And a lot of them are BIM Academies, but we take a lot as well from industry. But I remember doing the research and there's a lot of companies that are quite happy to hold on to all of this knowledge, all of this data that can help the industry. Do you think that, in, um, I would say, education would benefit from definitely getting more case studies from industry? Yes, but then there's a reward structure that mirrors education, isn't there, there, in what you've just described, in that we assess and reward students for their individual effort. When we look at a BIM team, we um, reward and remunerate organisations, companies, for their individual contribution, usually. There are very few contracts available and I'm not aware of widespread use of contracts that reward as as a team as a project team where you know so that there is constantly um a power struggle embedded within a BIM team for to own as much of the job as possible quite frequently and um and that also is about limits knowledge sharing and this isn't necessarily knowledge relating to the specifically to the project but it may be knowledge relating to the client or it may be knowledge relating to um uh networks and access to those networks to be able to get a kind of human capital within your company so that you become the indispensable and most highly rewarded part of that team. So I think the way we reward students and the way we reward organisations is really similar. And perhaps we need to move away from um, motivating individuals or organisations with in specific individual reward and actually look at mechanisms where we can uh, deliver a team reward for um, for the on, on the merit of the project outcome um that would and that would i think allow more knowledge sharing um and that soft knowledge sharing uh for um that would inevitably um allow us to deliver a, a more innovative and higher quality project so yeah i really like that that spin on it that you put it and um, put it towards there so do you think students coming from schools high education to further ed education get a lot of validation all the way through and achievements and qualifications and so on so when they're getting ready for industry are they expecting the same for when they go into organizations would you say that or would you say it's more to do with um they need self-validation when they actually leave further education to then suddenly find their own way to validate the work that they're doing that's a really difficult question, Andrew. I think it is really variable between university institutions. Like, like construction companies, every university has its own culture and its own um, 
different ways of managing cohorts of students. I think if you'd asked me that question a few years ago, I probably would have said yes. However, I think COVID changed everything. As teaching went remotely, um, students became more um, intrinsically motivated because they were working remotely. They didn't see, the, the tutor wasn't there. They weren't in their office. Everything was, teaching was done on teams. Uh, people didn't like to, for, you know, culturally we don't like to interject and put our hands up as much in teams as we do in a face-to-face -face lecture. So the, the teaching culture has changed significantly. Now, whether it changes back, it remains to be seen. But one thing I notice is that students work much more independently and are finding their own more extrinsic rather than extrinsic methods of validation. If they can find, um, and you know, it, it, they do it all online on their kitchen table, sometimes not even speaking to a tutor. Um, so if they, whether that will change the culture in practice uh, remains to be seen. And I think, so I think it's very hard to answer that question because I think we're in such a period of transition right now in terms of how students work and how people work in, but we'll eventually be expecting uh, what thing, what they will be expecting in practice. I've seen definitely there's been a huge shift in training. And as you mentioned there, reference um, since the pandemic, um, we've seen digital tools like the likes of using polls, so Slido, Mentimeter, to use an interactive um, collaboration boards like Miro. And again, we use these tools because it allows for collaboration but also as well, it aids in validation, I think as well, which is key. And they can do this anywhere, remotely. And again, most of our training, I would say 90% of it is still virtual training with a blended learning in, in environment, because that's the way our students, even industry, have evolved and like to learn. And again, it reduced costs. And also on that sustainability side is less travel, less hotels and so on. So it really does help with that. What barriers do you see in place which present resistance from education providers in making changes in their course curriculums or indeed authoring these new courses? You, I think universities are huge and complex institutions with, as you can imagine, a significant amount of um, let's call them processes rather than bureaucracy, but there's a lot of hoops to jump through to get um, a course validated. And, and so it should be because, you know, we need we need every course we deliver to be of the highest quality it can be. So it takes a lot of time. It mm -hmm. takes a big lead in period to uh, author a new course. So anyone who's interested in approaching a university to, to work on a new course or support a new course needs to factor that in. But ultimately, if there's clear data on market availability and the financials all stack up, then there's absolutely no reason why um, an industry organisation can't approach um, a university to look at authoring a new course. Universities are usually open to we're trying to deliver what the market needs um, so if someone wants to kind of fill those gaps then you've done half our job for us so we, again it's about those partnerships and alliances you know and we've seen that that can really work with the development of apprenticeships for example where we've worked with um, large uh, industry uh, companies to deliver apprenticeships tailored for them 
And I think as the construction industry uh, can do the same. So there needs to be more knowledge exchange going on between industry and university. I think barriers are slowly being removed as we become more online, based online as well, so that courses don't have to be face-to-face. -face. Courses can be delivered in chunks, in modules, so that uh, workers don't have to leave their office and can do it in amongst the work that they have to do and their own training and development time allocation. So looking not just looking at co course content but also looking at course delivery methods to see the best way that uh, people in practice can access this learning no i think you really you really did hit a main point at there and i think it was just covering it at the end which was flexibility mm -hmm. it makes the training provider and also your customer and you can have that flexibility there so the train provider can facilitate what and even make it bespoke like you were saying there bespoke training which will fit their needs because it's always on the audience the customers the students and so on like that that it's their needs that are important but I definitely think the flexibility and one thing that we used to do was face-to-face -face training we used to do six people maximum of 12 for virtual learning we could take 12 sometimes 20 and if it is a full lecture, we've had 250 as <laughs> a webinar, but still got the message across. Okay, you haven't got the interactions, but if it's a short lecture, say 30 minutes, 40 minutes, well, then you can scale that up and again, make it more into like bite-sized chunks and so on. So my last question is, what would you like to see happen next within industry and in education? I think what's come through this conversation really strongly, uh, Andrew, is the, the need for strengthening and broadening uh, partnerships and alliances between university and industry organisations. I think that is a priority um, because at the moment there's a bit of an ad hoc feel about provision and, that, and that's normal in an emerging industry, you know, as digital skills are kind of finding their, their level and digital roles and, you know, and what it means to be a BIM manager or a BIM technician is finding a, a clearer definition. I think um, we're now at a point where it's going to be time critical to establish those partnerships and those delivery methods. And there are lots of examples where that happens. Um, certainly, I work with external partners to deliver parts of my course online um, to people who are working um, all over the globe. So I think it's that's the priority. I think what I'd also like to see next is us to up, quickly update our course content in terms of the uh, human skills required for um, the people skills required for um, implementing BIM effectively. Looking at our theoretical frameworks, looking at about what collaboration really means in the digital age and making sure that we equip um, our students and our graduates with all the skills that they need to be able to slot into a huge complex project like say HS2 or, or whatever it is to be able to actually um, use the tool. BIM is a tool, um, but we need to use it effectively um, and understand adaptability and complexity um, in amongst that. I think that is, is in need of urgent updating. No, that's brilliant. No, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed this. I took a lot from it as well. 
Um, I know I put you on the spot a few times, but um, it was great. The knowledge is definitely there. So again, you've transferred that knowledge over to me, but I thoroughly enjoyed this interview. And um, thank you very much for your time. Jenny, it's been great. Thanks, Andrew. I feel we could have gone on for another hour, but uh, <laughs> it, it was a re really interesting conversation. Thanks very much. No, thank you.